light on a topic that typically stays in the dark, sex trafficking. Human trafficking, a big problem in West Texas. Well, Homeland Security says the population growth in West Texas is fueling the problem of both human and sex trafficking. You no, know, the police investigating a massage parlor for prostitution and potential human trafficking. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Boomtown, a podcast about the old boom playing out right now in the Permian Basin. On our last episode, guest host Susan Elizabeth Shepard introduced us to the women cashing in on the boom by slinging coffee, beer, and lap dances. Today, Susan returns to explore how West Texas is also experiencing a boom in sex work. Those who live in the Permian have heard the reports on the evening news about the steady rise in prostitution and trafficking. On a recent trip to my hometown of Andrews, I picked up the local paper. On the front page was a story about a woman who'd just been convicted of soliciting prostitution at the massage parlor she ran on Main Street. In a town as small as Andrews, such news creates a lot of talk. As Susan explains in this episode, There are many misconceptions about this type of work and strongly differing opinions about everything from the legal rights of those who sell sex consensually to who is actually a victim and who is not. Susan is joined once again by reporter Sally Beauvais of Marfa Public Radio. This is episode six, A Thin Line. Over the last decade, prompted by nonprofits trying to raise awareness, sex trafficking has emerged as an issue of the day for local media. At some point, basically every city in the country has been described as a major hub for trafficking. And every major sporting event and trade show has been said to draw traffickers. One case that we worked on was uh, in dealing with the lead up to the Super Bowl, which traditionally is one of the largest human trafficking events in America each year. That's Texas Governor Greg Abbott, back when he was the state's attorney general. When Dallas hosted the Super Bowl in 2011, Abbott repeated an unsubstantiated claim that the Super Bowl leads to a spike in trafficking. Ever since then, law enforcement, the NFL, and anti-trafficking organizations alike have pushed back on that myth. But it hasn't stopped a new round of similar stories from coming out every year. Here in the Permian, the boom itself is the big event that's supposed to increase trafficking. The metaphorical Super Bowl is the biannual international oil show. Workers are making some last-minute adjustments for this week's Permian Basin International Oil Show. Organizers expect 50,000 visitors from all over the world. The oil show in West Texas happens every other year. It's one of the leading organizations and leading events It would be equivalent to a Super Bowl somewhere else. That's Lisa Bounds. She runs the Midland-based anti-trafficking nonprofit Reflection Ministries. It's a week of predominantly men coming in from all over, away from their families, away from their homes, that are here for a big party. The podcast producers talked to Lisa on the phone before I traveled to the Permian Basin to report this episode but I made sure to visit her in person when I got there. The Reflection office is in a house in the hot real estate market of downtown Midland. Lisa proudly tells me that she secured the lease after sending dozens of emails to its absentee owner, 
and she's remade it into a bright, contemporary country style with a comfy couch, scented candles burning, and inspirational signs on the wall. Lisa is in the process of opening a shelter for trafficking victims outside of Midland. It's something she feels she was destined to do. I was walking back from class one day, and it was just like this overwhelming sense that the Lord was telling me that I was going to work with prostitutes. So I have, I have notebooks of drawings of what the village looks like. She's calling the shelter The Village. It's scheduled to open February 1st and will provide housing and counseling for female sex trafficking victims on a 25-acre property outside of Midland. Why Midland? This is Reflection Ministries board member Laura Cotton. It's from an online promotional video for the center, and Laura is talking about trafficking in the area. There is an issue of sex trafficking no matter where you live. It is not limited to large cities that you might think of as a New York or a Houston or a Dallas. It's even in small West Texas towns, and we are no, by no means a small West Texas town, but the Permian is the center of the world. And because of that, we are an economic boom. So there's money here, and when there's money, there's always going to be uh, sex trafficking, but we also have a highway nearby, Interstate 20, and that allows for a quick movement of victims, and that makes our area, um, the Permian, in, and specifically Midland, a prime area for sex trafficking. Lisa's vision is ambitious. She plans to have round-the-clock care and to be able to house trafficking victims for up to four years if necessary while they recover from addiction, trauma, and abuse. While there's a lot of funding available for the investigation of trafficking, victims have few resources. Lisa hopes to fill some of those gaps. She actually started Reflection Ministries in large part because of her own experience as a trafficking victim while she was a student at Texas Women's University. I grew up in a great um, home, Baptist upbringing, wonderful parents, um, very protected, so extremely uneducated about what the real world looks like and who the bad guys are. But when my first year at college, I was barely 18, and I wasn't on the campus um, of TWU for two weeks before um, a trafficker targeted me. And it started out your basic thing of, uh, just the grooming process, just a guy that was a little bit older than me. He was a smooth talker, very charming, uh, very handsome, and really just acted like he wanted to, to go out just to date. But she says he wanted something else. Within the first two weeks, um, he had um, drugged me and um, continued to manipulate the situation. He would show up at my class. Um, he'd be outside the door of my dorm when I left in the morning to go to class. He would follow me. There were, he was always around. And uh, there were threats um, about my family. He knew about my parents. He knew about where my sisters were. Trafficking wasn't even a word when, when it happened to me. And he always had it arranged. Um, he always had a buyer. So it wasn't like he made me walk the street. There was always a buyer waiting for every situation, every rape, um, every assault. But he would always slip something in my drink. He would always be extremely forceful. Um, it, there, was, there was no leaving. There was no escaping. Lisa never went to law enforcement for help, but she did manage to escape. In 1989, she moved to West Texas. She never told anyone about her past. I had no idea 
that I could tell someone because I lived with the guilt and the shame that I should have I should have known better. How did I get myself into this? And really just kind of stepping away, really not even understanding that it was really happening to me. It wasn't the way I was brought up. She got married and built a life in Midland. And it wasn't until 2016 that she finally told her husband what had happened. We were sitting um, at our kitchen table after church one day, and I just told my husband, I just said, I have to tell you something because I really am losing my mind. I can't sleep. I can't think about anything. I can't hold anything together. He goes, first of all, you're scaring me. And I said, and so I told him, and he said, I don't understand. Why would I not want to be married to you? Just because that happened to you doesn't mean that you're you're not the the person that I love, and um, and it and and it doesn't change you. And I said, but it does change me, and it does make me who I am now. Is because I want to step into that role and be a voice for someone that doesn't have a voice yet. Lisa's husband encouraged her to do whatever it took to realize her dream of helping other trafficking survivors, and she soon started planning the village, that idea that she'd had since college. As a result of her experience, Lisa knows better than most that sex trafficking cases are complicated. They're rarely clear-cut examples of force, fraud, or coercion. The relationships between traffickers and victims often look a lot more like domestic abuse than the sort of dramatic kidnapping shown in movies or warned of in viral Facebook posts about traffickers lurking in mall parking lots. Lisa works with law enforcement to identify potential victims. I asked her if she thought people should be arrested for prostitution. No, I, I don't think they they should. I think there's a lot more to just one charge, one instance. You have to look at the big picture. Where did they come from? Why are they on the street? Why do they even think it's okay? Why in the world is that their lifestyle that they have chosen? What has happened to them in the past that they think that's appropriate? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. I was curious to hear how the Odessa Police Department approached prostitution and trafficking. So we stopped in to talk to Lieutenant John Sykes at the downtown Odessa Police headquarters. On a conference room table outside his office, there was a large paper timeline of the mass shooting that had taken place two months earlier. I manage the intelligence division, uh, which includes the intelligence unit, uh, narcotics and vice, and um, a uh, proactive unit called the impact unit. I started here in December of 2007 uh, and started down on patrol and or actually in the academy and then came on up after. But So have you seen things change over that period of time that almost did 13 years now? It depends on what we're talking about but Odessa's Odessa. We're a busy town. Um, we're that's what we were just talking to some recruits about. Odessa's always been kind of a blue-collar town, and and we're a blue-collar police department. If you come in uh, as a as an officer here, you're going to work a lot. Uh, you're going to take a lot of calls, and you're going to get exposed to a lot of stuff. It's just a busy town. 
has the volume changed along sure. with the, the cycles of the oil industry? We see we see every time we have a bust in, uh, or a boom, we see a we see an uptick in crime just because it's I think just because it's more people. Uh, you put more people and concentrate them in an area, you're going to see more crime. Um, and it's not saying they're bad people. It's just more people in one area and more uh, more folks out. Um, but yeah, if, yeah, we see we see a, a rise in crime, and then as the as the oil starts to trickle down and folks lose jobs or, or the money goes away, you know, we see a an uptick in in some crimes like thefts and things like in burglaries, but then we see a decrease in other crimes. Um, so it's just an ebb and flow. I mean, it's always has been. We're a boomtown, so we always have been that way. You sound very, you know, kind of accustomed to that. Sure, I've lived here my whole life, and we. My dad was a cop here for uh, 25 years. My mom was an officer here. My stepmom's officer here. So I, I've heard this stuff for, for years, and so I mean, it proves true. I mean, it's this was this is a, this is a long boom. I mean, we're in the middle of a long boom, and and we've got a whole mess load of people in town. And so, yeah, I mean, we naturally see more crashes. We naturally see more uh, property crimes. And it's harder on the intelligence side because there's a lot of folks we don't know, you know. So we got to figure out who's who. Though John didn't know of any data that showed a real increase in trafficking, he did tell me that he'd rather find one trafficking victim than make 100 prostitution cases. It's modern-day slavery. And so when we get that one victim it it opens up the door for us and we get to put the real sharks in jail and not just a a prostitute trying to make it through the day all cops i've talked to about prostitution enforcement make the same distinction john does between trafficking victims and that woman just trying to make it through the day he noticed a rise in the ladder on the streets after backpage a huge classified site that was used widely by sex workers was seized by the federal government in 2018. Sex worker advocates warned that its closure would send women onto the streets, where fewer protective measures were available. That change collided with the boom to make a visible difference in Odessa. We've seen a lot more prostitution. Um, we haven't had the, uh, the traditional street walking prostitutes in a long time. And there for a while, we got them back. We were seeing them back in town. And so that that kind of caused us, okay, what's going on? Well, with the shutting down of Backpage and the, all of that stuff, you know, when we talk to these girls and, you know, they tell us that this is where the money is, you know, so it, it makes sense. And some of those women on the street get thrown in jail. Most of the time, cops have to rely on the people they're arresting to self-identify as victims. John says that rarely happens. A parallel scenario might be an undocumented person working on a farm. They could be a victim of agricultural trafficking, but they can also be arrested on immigration charges. That makes a potential victim less inclined to trust or seek help from an officer of the law. In the Permian, like in most of the U.S., cops rely heavily on undercover stings to enforce prostitution and trafficking laws. Far more people are arrested on prostitution charges than for trafficking. Sykes brought up a 2018 sting, Operation Gauntlet, 
that resulted in dozens of arrests, most of them men on solicitation charges. Twelve women were also arrested on prostitution charges. And I'll be honest, we get the ones that they flat either don't want the help or they don't think they need the help. And so with that, we do have a crime, and we're obligated at that point. Once we're there, the case is made. Um, we've tried our best to figure out if you need help or if you need to go to jail. And unfortunately for some, they just had to go to jail uh, for the crime. Of course, there are plenty of good reasons many women don't cooperate with the police. I was in a prostitution sting where I was actually in this guy's car um, in the middle of giving him oral sex, and he grabbed me by the hair and pulled me up and flipped me around and put me in handcuffs. Um, And honestly, I thought it was a serial killer. This is researcher and activist Tara Burns. She was 16 years old and in Alaska, not Texas, when this happened. She spoke with us from a studio in Anchorage. So I thought that I was about to be murdered. I was incredibly traumatized, you know. The man wasn't a serial killer. He was a police officer. Once Tara realized that, she knew she could be arrested on prostitution charges. But she also knew how to talk about her status as a minor as a means to get out of it. It worked. She says the officer pushed her out of the car. But I remember he was driving away. I was like, I need your badge number. But it was, you know, it was really traumatic. And for a few years after that, you know, when I would be in that, like, you know, in that position or giving somebody oral sex, I would, like, panic and think that they were about to grab me up and put me in handcuffs, you know. Tara grew up in Alaska. She's the person who got me to go to North Dakota in the first place. I met her in a stripper forum over a decade ago when she was living in the lower 48. To me, her personal experience epitomizes the complicated realities of sex work. I was a victim of sex trafficking as a minor here in Alaska, and I've worked in Alaska's sex industry for almost a quarter of a century now. As an adult, Tara helped found an Alaska organization that advocates for the rights of trafficking victims and sex workers. She studied policy and the sex trade in grad school, and she's contributed to multiple pieces of state legislation that aim to give more protections to the people working within the industry, including the first immunity law for sex workers, which passed in 2016. It says people can't be charged with prostitution if they're reporting a serious crime, like assault by a client. We need to be enfranchised as citizens who are able to pick up the phone and call the police without being afraid that, you know, the cops are going to arrest us or the cops are going to take our phone and arrest all of our customers or the guy that we hire to drive us to calls and wait outside for us that, you know, that he's a sex trafficker too. You know, the thing is you can walk away from a pimp and you can go on and live your life. You cannot walk away from a prostitution charge or a sex trafficking charge and go on and live your life. You're going to have discrimination in housing and employment and child custody for the rest of your life as soon as you get that prostitution charge. Similar laws protecting sex workers were also adopted in California, Washington, Oregon, and Utah in 2019. In other states, including Texas, Clients and sex workers who report suspected trafficking still are at risk of getting arrested. But for Tara, immunity from arrest is just a first step. 
She says that people selling sex need to be treated like workers who are trying to get better working conditions. Then they'll be safer and more able to report instances of trafficking with less fear. Um, What we need is the complete decriminalization of all aspects of consensual sex work. So we need that decriminalization. We need police to, you know, do some outreach to customers and say, hey, you know, you are our valuable partners in the fight against sex trafficking. You're the first responders. Call us anytime. We need anti-discrimination laws. We need it to be so that you can't lose your housing because of sex work. Um, And so that if you're trying to get out of sex work, you can't lose your job because of a prostitution record. Once, when Tara was traveling to dance in North Dakota, a cop knocked on the door of her RV while she was sleeping in a parking lot. He ran her ID and found out that she had a license to dance at the local strip club. And assuming that she needed help, he told her to wait while he sent a woman over to talk to her. And so then after I sat there for about an hour, a woman came and she came up to my window and she said that um, she said that she was from the women's shelter and she was kind of teary, you know, and she was like, honey, we can help you. You don't have to go back to your pimp. Um, and I remember like looking at her and just being like, you know, there's no way that I can even like have a conversation with this woman, you know. And I was just like, I, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not talking to you. I, I don't have a pimp. It's not what you think. But I'm not going to, like, have a whole conversation with you about the state of my soul, you know. That woman was just one of the many Tara has encountered from organizations that have ties to evangelical Christian groups and other faith-based organizations. Lisa Bounds, who's building the shelter for trafficking victims in Midland, fits the same mold. Lisa and Tara are alike in that they both want to see more protections for trafficking victims, but they disagree on the morality of sex work. Their stances are representative of two opposing philosophies. Tara, the Alaska advocate, sees the decriminalization of selling and buying sex as the way to fight trafficking. That's part of what's called the rights-based approach to both combating trafficking and violence against sex workers. It's supported by Amnesty International and the Freedom Network, a coalition of U.S. groups that work with trafficking survivors. And it's in opposition to the end-demand approach promoted by anti-trafficking nonprofits that have religious ties, such as Lisa's group in Midland. That approach calls for treating all sex workers like victims and aggressively going after customers. It's an approach that targets not just people being forced into sex work, but sex work itself. Because when we look at the pornography industry in the United States, we far overpower any other country on pornography. That's Lisa. When I spoke with her, she brought up some statistics about Pornhub viewership. One of the flyers her group gives out has these figures printed alongside stats about trafficking. I don't really feel that someone else's instant gratification ought to be okay by using someone else's body and be and and purchasing it. It sounds like you think that porn is on a spectrum with It is. The... They drive they drive trafficking. I'm I'm not saying that people happy couples together don't need to do whatever it is they want to do, but when we look at our porn sites, we are producing a society that feels like it's okay to use another person. 
and to buy another person. The idea that porn fuels trafficking is promoted by the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. That group was known until recently as Morality and Media and was founded by clergy opposed to pornography. Now, they're leading a successful effort to get states, including Texas, to adopt resolutions calling porn a public health hazard. They characterize all sectors of the sex industry as venues for trafficking. It's material that local governments, like Odessa's, cite in introducing restrictions on sexually oriented businesses. Remember the city council meeting about Odessa's new SOB ordinance? It was from the end of the last episode. First and foremost, it makes human trafficking a priority because that is one of the most important things that we are experiencing as a nation in the past several years. We've made it more stringent. We've made it tougher to go in and get licenses, not just for entertainers, but for non-entertainers alike. The city's new ordinance will make for some very real changes for the women who are supposed to be made safer. Getting a license to work in the club will be harder, and they'll have to physically display it on their person while they're working. In other cities, similar concerns have resulted in stuff like this. Two years ago, local and traveling dancers in New Orleans found themselves out of work just before Mardi Gras when state and local law enforcement raided eight Bourbon Street strip clubs as part of what they said was a human trafficking investigation. Arrests were made for prostitution and drug crimes, and some clubs closed permanently as a result of the raids, but no trafficking was uncovered. Odessa officials say they don't want to drive strip clubs out, just make people safer by regulating them more heavily to fight exploitation. But such regulations act like a blunt tool that reduces a complex problem to a simple criminal one. Will a dancer call a trafficking hotline if she's worried that a possible consequence could be that her club is raided and closed down, putting her out of work? Will she be more or less safe if she has to wear a license displaying identifying information that includes her full legal name? At one point while talking to Tara Burns, she told me that there's a particular stage during every oil boom that's most thrilling. I, I really like the beginning of the boom, and I, feel, I think that it's a, a distinction that people don't make enough. Um, when a boom is starting, there's all this energy in the air, there's all these young men who are making all this money that they've never made before, right? And it's just, it's exciting and you can make lots of money. But no boom lasts forever. I've seen waves of enforcement affect clubs in a lot of different places. When I danced in Austin, droves of dancers from Houston and San Antonio traveled there to work after those cities imposed stricter regulations and licensing requirements. In Williston, the clubs were completely closed in 2016 after the city council voted to shut them down, pushing some workers out of town entirely. In the same way that an oil boom and bus cycle repeats, so does the cycle in which communities decide to tolerate or crack down on this work. Stick around long enough, and it's a cycle you get used to. It's time to pack up and look for the next boom. On our next episode of Boomtown, I'll be back in the saddle as your host. 
We're going to take you to the sidelines of the most famous high school football program in the country, Odessa's Permian Mojo Panthers. We'll see how the boom is affecting the area's schools, from the classroom to the Friday night lights. I hate it when the day goes so slow, waiting on the boss to say go. You can't out at the moon from your motel room, but all I really want to do is just go home. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hope. Produced and engineered by Brian Standifer, who also wrote the score. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit and co-reported by Leif Riegstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Paik Rossi. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. This episode was produced in collaboration with the award-winning crew at Marfa Public Radio. Thanks again to Sally Beauvais for her work reporting and editing this episode. If you're outside of West Texas, you can follow them at marfapublicradio.org. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interest in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. Don't forget to tell your friends about Boomtown and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show. Boomtown is a 10-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on social media and visit texasmonthly.com boomtown for more on the story. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.